0: We'll get government off your backs and out of your lives. Yeah, but they still want to tell you what magazines you can read, and they still want to tell you what rock lyrics you can listen to, and they still want to force your kids to pray in school, and they still want to tell you what you can say on the radio. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, decided all by itself that radio and television were the only two parts of American life not protected by the free speech provisions of the First Amendment to the Constitution. I'd like to repeat that, because it sounds vaguely important. <laughs> the FCC, an appointed body, not elected, answerable only to the president, decided on its own that radio and television were the only two parts of American life not protected by the First Amendment to the Constitution. And Why did they decide that? Because they got a letter from a minister in Mississippi. <laughs> a Reverend Donald Wildman in Mississippi heard something on the radio that he didn't like. Well, Reverend, did anyone ever tell you there are two knobs on the radio? Mm -hmm. No! Reverend, there are two knobs on the radio. One of them turns the radio off and the other one changes the station. Imagine that, Reverend. You can actually change the station. It's called freedom of choice and it's one of the principles this country
1: was founded upon.
2: Today on LegalEase, we will be discussing categories of unprotected speech. Hey, greetings everybody, and welcome back to LegalEase. Now, before I forget, I want to uh, let you know I have an update and also a question that I want to put to all of you uh, lovely legally subscribers out there. I don't want to eat up several minutes talking about it right now during the introduction. So please make a point to watch this through to the very end after I sign off uh, where I will stick in that update uh, or perhaps I'll put a timestamp to that uh, down in the video description. But uh, anyways, yeah, just uh, be looking out for that. So anyways, now. Welcome back, everybody, to Legalese, Uh, especially if you are new to my channel. uh, This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, I recently asked you guys if you would perhaps like a video discussing the forms of speech which are not protected by the First Amendment. His Facebook post was also not a true threat, which is actually another category of speech unprotected by the First Amendment. Uh, It it Actually, uh, while I'm thinking about it, a lot of people don't know that there's actually uh, five different kinds of speech not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, If you guys would like a video on what those five are uh, and how they came to be and what they mean, let me know in the comment section. Uh, That's the video I would be more than happy to make. So let me know. And a number of you replied with a very enthusiastic, yeah, I guess so. And I am nothing if not the kind of man dedicated to giving people what they want, or at least a man dedicated to giving some of the people the things that I suggested they want. So uh, I think this is actually a very good time for this video. And I'm a, this was by no means intentional on my part, but I, I really do think this is an appropriate subject to be discussing at present.
0: I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms or euphemistic language. And American English is loaded with euphemisms. Because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. Americans have trouble facing the truth. So they invent a the kind of a soft language to protect themselves from it. And it gets worse with every generation.
2: Now, this is because both major political parties seem to be declaring themselves the defenders of the true spirit of freedom of speech, while their actions suggest that their conception of what freedom of speech actually means is only those things which it is personally advantageous for them to defend, while simultaneously suggesting that it is only those things which would be personally advantageous for them to censor that they claim just so happen to lie outside the categories of protected speech.
3: happens. i want to live in democracy, but I never want to be offended again. <laughs> well, you're an idiot.
2: But even beyond uh, problems like that that are caused by intentional misinterpretation, biased descriptions, and self-serving manipulation, there is also an intrinsic and unavoidable cause of misinformation on this front, and that is that the few select limits on speech have been carefully honed over decades of case law into a handful of narrow categories of speech that the First Amendment does not protect. Now, because of this winding legal landscape, there are many misconceptions as to what actually constitutes unprotected speech. And tangentially speaking, I want to add that there is often a conception that because constitutional law evolves over time, that that must mean that it is always drifting further away from the original understanding of the framers and ratifiers who gave the document legal force. Now, while that certainly can occur, and in fact, uh, as I've outlined in my book uh, about the implied powers doctrine, that evolution can have massive negative consequences, that detrimental change happens far less than people assume. Now, constitutional law is the product of one body, the Supreme Court, and most evolution is merely constitutional construction. That is to say, applying constitutional principles to relevant issues that have simply never arisen before. So bear in mind, the court... Never directly addressed the Second Amendment until 2008. But when they did, Heller and McDonald would clarify that its original meaning was a protection of an individual and not a collective right. So that is a part of a windy process of constitutional law that further clarified the original meaning. Anyways, to minimize the possibility of such intentional or unintentional uh, misconceptions arising from this discussion today, what I have done is I have consciously avoided incorporating information based on personal opinions, and that includes my own opinion. We are going to be looking solely to establish First Amendment precedent in constitutional law, and every precedent will be rooted in established case law and every definition, doctrine, and principle will be explained through a textual analysis of that case law. And so I want to be clear, I don't necessarily agree with every jot and tittle of every established precedent that I will be discussing here. And perhaps in a future video I can discuss the many things I believe the court gets right, and the small number of exceptions where I think that their construction departs from the amendment's original meaning— But today, I want to do my best to give you the information you would need to successfully defend your natural and individual right of free speech expression and conduct within our existing legal and constitutional framework. And as always, our show notes page, uh, you will find links to all kinds of cool stuff, including the full case briefs of every decision that we will be discussing here today and All kinds of additional information that I believe anyone wanting to learn more about this topic would find useful. And I strongly encourage everyone to, at the very least, go and read the full case briefs of the landmark decisions that define unprotected speech. Now, first, I do want to address a potentially vicious rumor that may have been spreading Uh, Since my first amendment police defended episode, because in that video, uh, if you remember, I said there were five forms of unprotected speech. Uh, It it actually, uh, while I'm thinking about it, a lot of people don't know that there's actually uh, five different kinds of speech not protected by the first amendment. Now. Now. Of course, in actuality, the true number of classes of unprotected speech is not five, but seven. And I assume there were probably some people listening who picked up on that at the time, so I just wanted to get ahead of this problem before any vicious rumors may start to spread by people who may be inclined to make assumptions about why I may have said five. I can imagine that people who caught that may have jumped to conclusions such as assuming that because Uh, At that time, I had already started working on an episode discussing the five rights protected by the First Amendment, and with that topic on my mind, I simply got discombobulated and mixed up with talking about the five rights of protection in the First Amendment with the seven forms of speech that are not protected in the First Amendment. However, any suggesting that I was confused or mistaken are incorrect. I simply reject the white man's cultural appropriation of Arabic numerals as a manifestation of digital colonialism, as well as the institutionalized bigotry inherent in the deeply racist base 10 number system that the white man has imposed on people of color to maintain a mindset of oppression through white arithmetic supremacy and numeral misogyny. And I especially, emphatically reject any use of the number seven for being the most racist number of all racist numbers in this institutionally racist number system. And if you don't believe the number 7 is especially racist, think again. Anyways, I say all that to say this. To borrow a term from woke culture, my lived experience which is to say my subjective truth, which is to say the bullshit I tell myself and others despite my awareness that it's bullshit because it makes me feel safer, is that any perception that I misspoke when I previously mentioned five unprotected classes of speech is not evidence I was wrong. It is evidence that anyone who says I was wrong is a bigot. Now, with that said, let's move on to our categories of unprotected speech. All right, the very first category is incitement. And for this definition, we are looking to Brandenburg v. Ohio. This is a landmark case in the Supreme Court from 1969. In this case, the Supreme Court of the United States would hold that the First Amendment does not protect speech that is, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action, end quote. Now, mere advocacy of lawbreaking or violence remains protected speech as long as it is not intended to and likely to provoke immediate unlawful action. So these definitions place emphasis on the actual intent and seriousness of the threat. And this allows the authorities to take things like bomb threats seriously while keeping the government from punishing clearly hyperbolic expression, Uh, such as uh, there is that infamous photo of Kathy Griffin holding a uh, uh, Griffin, excuse me, holding a depiction of Donald Trump's head. Or uh, we had a famous case that went very high up in the courts of someone yelling, quote, I'm going to kill you. On at on another Fortnite player while playing a video game. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that these definitions envision speech or conduct aimed at specific individuals or sets of individuals, and they do not include more generalized concepts. So looking a bit closer at the uh the controlling case here, Brandenburg v. Ohio. Now, the legal principles that were at issue in this case were whether an Ohio Ohio law prohibiting speech that advocates for illegal activities was a violation of Brandenburg's First Amendment rights. And to look at the basic facts of the case, so Brandenburg was convicted of violating a criminal law that prohibited speech that advocates crime, sabotage, violence, and other similar acts after he spoke at a KKK rally. The Supreme Court found that that law infringed on Brandenburg's First Amendment rights and created the imminent lawless action test. In order for speech to fall out of First Amendment protection, it must, one, be directed at producing imminent lawless action, and two, it is likely to produce such action. So the court found that Brandenburg's speech did not meet this test, and because of this, his conviction was reversed. And sort of the important takeaway from this case is that speech is not constitutionally protected if it is directed at producing imminent lawless action and is likely to produce such action. Now, our next category is true threats.
3: And then we have political correctness, which is is the joy that is the other side of health and safety, which is health and safety, which is a small oppression of our physical movement, so we can't do anything without permission from the state. And political correctness is the oppression of our intellectual movement, so no one says anything anymore in case somebody else gets offended. (laughs) What happens if you say that and someone gets offended? (coughs) Well, they can be offended. (laughs) What's wrong with being offended? When did sticks and stones may break my bones stop being relevant? Isn't that what you teach children, for God's sake? That's what you teach toddlers. He called me an idiot. Don't worry about him. He's a dick.
2: So the first case we want to consider here is Virginia v. Black. This is a Supreme Court case from 2003, and here the Supreme Court defined true threats as those statements where the speaker means to communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence to a particular individual or group of individuals. And the court would clarify that the speaker need not actually intend to carry out the threat. So looking a little closer at Virginia v. Black, we see the legal principle at issue is whether a statute that in this case banned cross-burning with the intent to intimidate violates the First Amendment. And the basic facts of the case uh, are that this case arose out of two separate cross-burning incidents. One, in May of 1998, Richard J. Elliott and Jonathan O'Mara burned a cross in the yard of James Jubilee, Elliott's black neighbor. And in August of 1998, uh, Barry Elton Black led a Ku Klux Klan rally on private property with the consent of the property's owner. Black burned a cross at the rally, which frightened a relative of the property owner who watched from a nearby house. Now, prosecutors charged all three men with violating Virginia's cross-burning statute, which provides, quote, it shall be unlawful for any person or persons with the intent of intimidating any person or group of persons to burn or to cause to be burned a cross on the property of another a highway, or other public place, end quote. Now, all three men lost their criminal cases before the trial court. So the Court of Appeals would affirm their convictions of all three men in these two separate cases, and the appeals court reasoned that the statute only prescribes true threats, a category of expression not protected by the First Amendment. So the appeals court, also determined that the burning of the cross is a form of fighting words, another category of speech not protected by the First Amendment that we will be covering a little later. But on appeal, the Virginia Supreme Court, which consolidated these two cases in a 4-3 to decision, uh, would reverse the decision, finding that the statute violated the First Amendment. The majority reasoned that the statute regulated speech based on hostility to the underlying message of cross-burning. And ultimately, the Supreme Court of the United States would uphold the portion of the statute which bans burning a cross in public with the intent to intimidate, but invalidated the provision that treated all cross-burnings as evidence for intent to intimidate. And the importance of this case was that the Supreme Court would find that the bulk of the statute fell in line with another uh, uh, important case, a landmark case. That's what I'm looking for, another landmark case. This was RAV versus City of St. Paul from 1992, which permits the state to limit the worst kinds of particular forms of proscribable speech, like intimidation and true threats, as long as it is done without regard to content or viewpoint. So the court in black said that although some forms of cross-burning may be considered intimidating when carried out with the intent to communicate a threat of physical harm to a specific target, not all cross-burnings may automatically be considered as evidencing such an intent to intimidate. Now, the court defined true threats as statements where the speaker means to communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence to a particular individual or group of individuals. And further, the court held that speech loses First Amendment protection and becomes intimidation when it is a type of true threat where a speaker directs a threat to a person or group of persons with the intent of placing the victim in fear of bodily harm or death. Now, in Watts v. United States, the court found that true threats are distinguishable from heated rhetoric. For example, the court would hold in that case, Watts, that the First Amendment protected a man's statement after being drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. And he said that, quote, if they ever make me carry a rifle, the first man I want to get in my sights is LBJ, end quote as the statement was not a true expression of intent to kill the president. All right, and we are moving on to our next category. This is one that we just mentioned uh, a second ago. These are fighting words. Now, if you're anything like me, you went through the majority of your life thinking that fighting words was a phrase created by, by Mel Blank in Looney Tunes because it sounded like a, h- a hilarious and fitting catchphrase for Yosemite Sam. Now, you dog blasted ornery, no account, long eared varmint. Hey, just a minute,
0: you. Them's fighting words. Yeah, them's fighting words. Just a minute, partner. You can't talk to me like that. Them's fighting words.
2: Yeah,
0: them's fighting words.
2: However, as it turns out, this is actually a very real term of art that is employed in constitutional law. So, fighting words are those that, by their very act of being spoken, tend to incite the individuals to whom they are addressed to respond violently and to do so immediately with no time to think things over. The fighting words category is an exceedingly limited classification of speech, encompassing only face-to-face communications that would obviously provoke an immediate and violent reaction from the average listener. Now, while the term fighting words describes words that were uttered to inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace, the fighting words doctrine in United States constitutional law is a limitation to the freedom of speech as protected by the First Amendment, To the United States Constitution. This was first defined in 1942. The U.S. Supreme Court established this doctrine uh, in a 9-0 decision in the landmark case, Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire, where they held that, quote, insulting or fighting words, those that by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace, are among the well-defined and narrowly limited classes of speech that. Uh, the prevention and punishment of which have never been thought to raise any constitutional problems. Now, in the Chaplinsky decision, uh, what we had was Chaplinsky, who was a Jehovah's Witness, who had uh, purportedly told a New Hampshire town marshal who was attempting to prevent him from preaching that this marshal was a, quote, damned racketeer and a, quote, damned fascist, and he was subsequently arrested. Now, the court upheld the arrest and wrote in its decision that there are certain well-defined and narrowly limited classes of speech, the prevention and punishment of which have never been thought to raise any constitutional problems. These include the lewd and obscene, the profane, the libelous, and the insulting or fightin' words. Those which, by their very utterance, inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace, it has been well observed that such utterances are not an essential part of any exposition of ideas and are of such slight social value as a step to truth that any benefit that may be derived from them is clearly outweighed by the social interest in order and morality. Now, the court has continued to uphold the doctrine, but it has also steadily narrowed the grounds on which fighting words are held to apply. So, in 1972, the court held that offensive and insulting language, even when directed at specific individuals, is not fighting words. To elucidate the modern distinction of what does and does not meet the standard of fighting words, I want to look at two recent cases that on the surface appear remarkably similar. Yet, in one case, the court concluded that the utterance was not fighting words, while in the other, the utterance was deemed to be fighting words. And it's because only on closer inspection does the distinction become clear. Here, the devil, as they say, is in the details. The first case is one that I was dying to cover back in June when the court's opinion was filed because of just how absolutely ridiculously awesome the whole thing is. Unfortunately, I didn't have enough uh, to say about it to justify a standalone episode. So right now, I am very excited to introduce you all to State v. Gibson. Or as I call it, the people versus the red-headed bitch. I'm talking, of course, about ginger kids. Oh, sick! Gross! Ginger kids are born with a disease which causes very light skin, red hair, and freckles. Ah, nasty, yuck! This disease is called gingivitis, and it occurs because ginger kids have no souls. Now, in State v. Gibson, the Ohio District Court held that a man calling his male neighbor a red-headed bitch...
1: What? Kids who have gingivitis cannot be cured. Ah, sick! Gross! Yuck!
2: Wasn't constitutionally unprotected fighting words. However, in contrast to State v. Gibson, a similar case that came before an Ohio appeals court just back in 2020 called City of Columbus v. Fabich, would hold that a man calling his black neighbor nigger were fighting words. Now, in both instances, the verbal altercation between neighbors would escalate to physical violence as a direct result of the disparaging epithets that were used. And both cases turned on whether or not the epithets that were uttered constituted fighting words, sufficient to result in a conviction for disorderly conduct. So, how do we account for such disparate outcomes? Well, let's start by looking at the relevant facts and circumstances in the Gibson case. To begin with, the court would consider contemporary standards. Gibson's epithet, they said, was of a milder variety compared to other cases where more egregious expletives were not found to be fighting words. Like vampires, the ginger gene is a curse. And unless we work to rid the earth of that curse, the gingers could envelop our lives in blackness for all time. It is time that we all admit to ourselves that gingers are vile and disgusting. In that case, the court would cite the following examples. In State v. Dodson, under these circumstances, it was not considered fighting words to call various police officers, quote, motherfuckers. In City of Chilcloth v. Lowry, Saying, quote, fuck you to police officers and reportedly calling them, quote, motherfuckers did not constitute fighting words. In State V. calling a store manager a fat, ugly bitch and worse and saying, quote, fuck you, you're not a manager and quote, were not fighting words under the facts of the case. And in the people in the interest of RC, rejecting an argument that the term cocksucker by its mere utterance, qualifies as fighting words. Now, in the Gibson case, the court would go on to further clarify the decision. They said no matter how rude, abusive, offensive, derisive, vulgar, insulting, crude, profane, or opprobrious, spoken words may seem to be, their utterance may not be made crimes unless they are fighting words. Fighting words are those that by their very utterance inflict injury or are likely to provoke the average person to an immediate retaliatory breach of the peace. Now, Gibson would argue that the trial court had erred by denying his motion for acquittal in accordance with the Criminal Rules of Procedure 29A, now, Gibson maintains that to convict him of disorderly conduct, the state needed to introduce evidence sufficient to prove he insulted Foley with constitutionally unprotected fighting words. According to Gibson, the state had failed to do so, and the trial court should therefore have granted his motion for judgment of acquittal. Now, in this case, Gibson's assignment of error was sustained, having found error prejudicial to Gibson in the particulars assigned. And argued in the first assignment of error. And on these grounds, the court would reverse the judgment of the trial court. Concluding Gibson's conviction is not supported by sufficient evidence, they would remand the case back to the trial court to vacate. And moving on to the other case, City of Columbus v. Fabich. So here, an Ohio appeals court upheld the ethnic intimidation and disorderly conduct conviction of a Columbus, Ohio man who uttered the word nigger repeatedly at a black neighbor.
1: Oh, did I just do a racism?
2: Now, Brown, the neighbor, contended that Fabich unleashed a torrent of profane and racial slurs at Brown. Brown would file a complaint with the police who charged Fabich with the ethnic intimidation and disorderly conduct And on appeal, Fabich would challenge the constitutionality of both ordinances. Now Fabich contended that this ordinance was unconstitutional because it accounted to impermissible content and viewpoint-based discrimination against offensive speech. However, the appeals court said that the ordinance punishes a bigoted motive for employing fighting words against Brown without regard to what those words were. The court would go on to say that it is permissible for the government to add to the punishment of crimes where the criminal acts were committed due to a repugnant or socially destabilizing motive, such as, in this case, a racist motive. And the court would then address the ethnic intimidation ordinance, which provides that prosecutors may add an enhancement offense if the predicate offense involved A victim selected for his or her race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, national origin, or age. In this case, the disorderly conduct was the predicate or underlying offense. So, Fabich may be really the very best example of the court applying what I refer to as the Carlin Doctrine.
0: Now I probably got some other group pissed off at me because I said fruit. <laughs> There's a different group to get pissed off at you in this country for everything you're not supposed to say. Can't say fruit, can't say faggot, can't say queer, can't say Nancy boy, can't say pansy. Can't say nigger, boogie, jig, jigaboo, skinhead, jungle bunny, mooly, moolin or schwarzer. Can't say yid, heeb, zeeb, kike, maki, uh, dago, guinea, wop. Ginzo, Greaser, Greaseball, Spick, Beaner, Oye, Tiger, PR, Mick, Donkey, Turkey, Limey, Frog, Squarehead, Kraut, Jerry, Hun, Chink, Jap, Nip, Slope, Slopehead, Zip, Zipperhead, Gook, there is absolutely nothing wrong... There is absolutely nothing wrong with any of those words in and of themselves. They're only words. It's the context that counts. It's the user. It's the intention behind the words that makes them good or bad. The words are completely neutral. The words are innocent. I get tired of people talking about bad words and bad language. Bullshit! It's the context that makes them good or bad. The context that makes them good or bad racist. You take the word nigger. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the word nigger in and of itself. It's the racist asshole who's using it that you ought to be concerned about. We don't care when Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy say it. Why? Because we know they're not racist. They're niggers. <laughs> context. Context. We don't mind their context because we know they're black. Hey, I know I'm Whitey the Blue-Eyed Devil fade Gray Boy Honky Motherfucker myself. <laughs> Don't bother my ass. They're only words.
2: Yeah. Alright, we are now moving on to our next category, which is obscenity.
1: The use of obscenity.
2: Obscenity? So, obscenity. Establishing obscenity is determined by applying what is known as the Miller Balancing Test. This comes from the 1973 landmark case of Miller v. California, where the Supreme Court outlined a three-pronged standard that material must meet in order to be considered legally obscene. So first, whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work taken as a whole appeals to the purient interest, which is an inordinate interest in sex. Secondly, whether the work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way sexual conduct, and third, whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. And note the third prong is considered an objective standard and is judged by reference to national rather than community standards. Essentially, if all three prongs are met, The material enjoys virtually no First Amendment protection in the jurisdiction where it is adjudicated obscene and the government may regulate its transmission, communication, or sale.
1: The next category
2: is defamation. Now, it's important to note here the First Amendment does protect false speech with very limited exceptions, including defamation and fraud. So the difference is that defamation is a false statement of fact that also, one, is communicated to a third party, two, is made with the requisite guilty state of mind, and three, harms an individual's reputation. So to be defamatory... A statement must be an assertion of fact rather than a mere opinion or a rhetorical hyperbole, and capable of being proven false. As to state of mind, if the person allegedly defamed is a public figure, he or she must prove actual malice. Namely, that the speaker made the statement either with knowledge of its falsity or with a reckless disregard for the truth. A non-public figure need only prove that the speaker was negligent in making the false statement. And our next category is fraud and perjury. Now, while again, the First Amendment makes no categorical exception for false or misleading speech, certain types of fraudulent statements fall outside of its protection. The government can impose liability for false advertising, or on speakers who knowingly make a factual misrepresentation to obtain money or some other material benefit, such as employment, prohibitions on perjury, which is knowingly giving false testimony under oath, are also constitutional. And our final category of unprotected speech, Speech Integral to Criminal Conduct. And the standard comes from Gibney v. Empire Storage and Ice Company. This is a 1949 case. And here, the Supreme Court held that the First Amendment affords no protection to, quote, speech or writing used as an integral part of conduct in violation of a valid criminal statute, end quote. So a robber's demand at gunpoint that you hand over your money is not protective speech, nor is extortion, criminal conspiracy, or solicitation to commit a specific crime. Abstract advocacy of lawbreaking remains protected speech. And so, with the categories of protected speech, uh, unprotected speech, now done, uh, some of you out there may be asking, what of hate speech and harassment? Isn't that protected speech?
3: Now you have adults going, I was offended. I was offended and I have rights. (laughs) So what? Be offended. Nothing happens. You're an adult. Grow up. Deal with it. I was offended. I don't care. Nothing happens when you're offended. There's nothing. I I went to the comedy show and and the comedian said something about the Lord and, and I was offended. And when I woke up in the morning, I had leprosy.
2: That's right. Some may be wondering why hate speech and harassment are not in the list of categories of unprotected speech. That is because, actually, contrary to popular misconception, there is no First Amendment exception for so-called hate speech. The First Amendment fully protects speech that is unpopular or that someone may find downright offensive. Don't let it infect
3: you. your heads. It's a trick, the great trick of political correctness. Acting like it's a noble intention, but it's not. It's taking away your power. You can't make it an offence to offend people. What are you talking about? You make it an offence to offend someone. That brings the rule of law into the realm of the subjective. What's that? If you choose to be offended, you may have a valid right to be offended, but it's up to you how you choose to be offended if you choose to behave in a certain way, and that's just simplified Buddhism. It's up to you how you get offended, up to your ideologies, and your traditions, and your cultures, and your moral conditioning, and your religious beliefs, and something that offends me may not offend a single one of you, on any level. So how can you have a law that has any kind of rationality and validity with that kind of thinking? I'm offended when I see boy bands. (laughs) It's a valid offence, I'm offended. They're corporate shills posing as musicians to further a modelling career, and frankly, I'm disgusted. (laughs) Where's my lawyer? What am I going to do? Call the cops? Hello, it's me again. They're on the telly. There's five of them this time. White suits dancing like fags. That's them, yes.
2: Five minutes, I'll be out the front traumatized. Bye. So, for example, the Supreme Court has held The First Amendment allows you to wear a jacket that says "fuck the draft in a public building that comes from Cohen v. California. It allows you to protest a soldier's funeral with a sign that says thank God for dead soldiers that comes from Snyder v. Phelps in 2011. It allows you to burn an American flag in protest that is from the landmark Texas v. Johnson case, as well as United States v. Eichmann. And... It also protects giving a racially charged speech to a restless crowd, according to Terminello v. Chicago, a 1949 president. So to cover perhaps the uh, most well-known of those here, Texas v. Johnson, 1989. The Supreme Court stated the general rule regarding protected speech when it held that, quote, government may not prohibit the verbal or nonverbal expression of an idea merely because society finds the idea offensive or disagreeable. Federal courts have consistently followed this holding when applying the First Amendment. And I just want to uh, point out here real quick Uh, As far as the sign that I have included in that slide there, we condemn freedom of speech that hurts others' feelings. I just want to let the person who made that sign know that I find that sign incredibly offensive and it deeply hurts my feelings. And I trust that you will uh, make an apology video burning that sign and uh, apologizing to me personally uh, as soon as you are able to. After all, it hurts my feelings, and you condemn that. So moving on.
1: Oh, some people don't like you to talk like that. Oh, some
0: people do like to shut you up for saying those things. You know that. Lots of people, lots of groups in this country want to tell you how to talk, tell you what you can't talk about. Well, sometimes they'll say, well, you can talk about something, but you can't joke about it. So you can't joke about something cause it's not funny. Comedians run into that shit all the time. Like rape, they'll say, you can't joke about rape. Rape's not funny. I say, fuck you, I think it's hilarious. How do you like that? I can prove to you that rape is funny. Picture Porky Pig raping Elmer Fudd. See, hey, why do you think they call him Porky, huh? I know what you're gonna say, Elmer was asking for it.
2: Now, the final thing that I want to mention Is that there is no general First Amendment exception for harassment. And courts have struck down anti harassment regulations and laws for overbroad regulation, reaching a substantial amount of protected speech. Now, there are a few location based exceptions, such as in education and workplace safety regulations, where very narrowly tailored definitions give the government authority to punish behavior that truly impairs the educational or workplace environment. Uh, according to the precedent in Davis v. Monroe County Board of Education, the Supreme Court held that such harassment must be targeted, discriminatory, and part of a larger pattern of harassing behavior. So really, in short, isolated pure speech or expression is highly unlikely to constitute harassment on its own. And that is all I have for you guys here today. Thank you so much for watching the show. Uh, if you would take a moment and do all of those things that helped you trigger Al Gore's rhythm, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, you know, if you liked it, hit the like button. If you disliked it, hit the dislike button. Uh, subscribe to the channel. Definitely leave me a comment and let me know what you think. And, and speaking of leaving a comments, let me, uh, that thing that I, I talked about at the very beginning, the update and the question I had for you guys. So uh, my website. My uh, website the show's homepage, legalesepodcast.com. I had put that up a few months ago, Uh, just as sort of like a basic uh, background site with some background information. I really didn't put much there. Um, And recently, the traffic on that site has spiked, like really, really spiked it, like to an insane level. Um, And so... What I'm wondering is, it seems like if that's going to be a regularly visited website, that it should probably have and do more than it does now. So what I wanted to ask you guys is, uh, if you have been to my website, uh, or if you haven't, if you would maybe even consider taking some time and going to the website and uh, letting me know if there's anything the website either doesn't have that you would like me to add, or if there's any feature that you think could be improved uh, or updated in some way. And if you want to do that, you can reach out to me uh, in several ways. If you want to just leave a comment on this video, that's fine. I'll, I'll read that there. Otherwise, there's also um, a comment form in the contact section of the website. So you can uh, reach me there. Or you can just send me an email directly. Uh, if you send it to bob at legallyshow.com, I will get that. Uh, and just a- any suggestions you have about the website, about um, I- improving things, uh, adding stuff that isn't there, maybe taking out stuff thats that shouldn't be there, j- anything like that. I would be uh, very appreciative of uh, your opinions on that. So, anyways, that is all I have for you. Until next time, this has been Bob for LegalEase, uh, talking about unprotected speech, and of course, as always, cartago de lenda est.